Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. As perhaps you um, understand in our practice, in putting this, these teachings and this practice uh, into our daily life, that relationships are a very integral part of this practice. In the Eightfold Path, right relationship is really expressed under right speech, right action, right livelihood. And so the Buddha understand that, understood that we are we're not alone and we need to learn how to relate in a wise and loving way to the world around us. Perhaps the most important and the most challenging relationship of all, however, is the relationship that we have to ourself. And tonight I'd like to talk about this relationship with ourself, particularly in the um, context of loving ourself, loving myself. Just see how those words sit with you. If it's even within the realm of possibility to grok it, for some it's so foreign. I asked Adam, actually, he said, are you going to say, are you going to tell other people about this? I was asking him at the dinner, I was trying to write, and I looked up and I said, do you love yourself? He thought for a moment, he said, yeah, yeah, I do. Doesn't everybody, everybody loves themselves. And I said, no, I don't know. I think a whole lot of people have difficulty. They might want to love themselves, but it's not so easy. <coughs> Particularly, um, besides having the, the not natural relationship of joy and appreciation, there can be overlay of a spiritual idea that it's not so good to love ourself. That somehow that is akin to conceit. And the Buddha talked a lot about conceit as a kind of reification of self and separation from others, particularly in placing ourselves higher or lower than or even equal to others so that we feel separate. But also in the colloquial use of the word conceit, there can be this um, fear that comes out of perhaps a wanting to have a modesty that it's not okay to celebrate ourself. And in that, we deny our beauty. We deny our perfection. So first I just want to um, address this point that loving yourself, as I see it, is very different from conceit. Usually when somebody, we say somebody is conceited or they are 
consumed with themselves, there's underneath a root of insecurity that there needs to be a, a kind of uh, proof that one is worthy and one wants to show one's self to the world that one is worthy of of that love but when we truly love ourselves there's a sense of wholeness of certainty of rightness where we don't have to make more of who we are we just know that we are fine the way we are and worthy of the same love that we would have or want to um, express towards anybody else. It's not excluding ourselves from all the love that we'd want to share with everyone else. Just want to get a sense, a little survey. Okay? How many people here have trouble loving themselves? Just a quick show of hands. Okay. I thought I'd just check and make sure that I, I wasn't talking to you know, people who had got that one down. <laughs> Why is it so hard? Why do you think it's so hard? I mean, here we are, these creatures of the universe, born as innocent babies, just like the baby that you would see gurgling and cooing that you would, your heart would go out to so effortlessly and say, oh, isn't he or she adorable? No effort at all required to feel that caring and delight and love. We were all those cute little babies. What happened along the way? It got really harder and harder, perhaps as we tried to figure out what, would, what we thought would gain approval or love from our parents and the world around us, and somehow we stopped just being ourselves and tried to fit ourselves into some kind of idea of what would be acceptable as we became more socialized and more... Um, um, conforming to follow the rules. You know, certainly there's a place for rules, but if we lose ourselves in the process, if we lose our natural being, which includes the whole show of annoyance and anger and, uh, and frustration, and as well as love and beauty, um, then it's hard to even find out who we are. Or when those other unpleasant things come up, we say, oh no, not that. That's the very thing I was not wanting to look at. And there's a wonderful book just comes to mind as I'm, I'm speaking on the subject uh, by Alice Miller called The Drama of a Gifted Child. It's a, it's a really, it's a profound book for me to see how we lose ourselves in our efforts to win approval from the world around us. Einstein has this beautiful phrase he calls our misperceiving 
an optical delusion of consciousness that somehow we don't include ourselves or somehow we, we don't include a certain population, most of the population outside of a limited number of beings in our love, not realizing that we are not separate. And what we usually do is cut ourselves off from everything that's worthy of love as well. And I've mentioned here before how the Dalai Lama couldn't quite get the notion of unworthiness when he first started uh, spending a lot of time in the West. Unworthiness, what does that mean? And saying, this is a great misperception to not include yourself in the love that you'd have for everything. How is it that you think that everything else belongs in this universe, in this lawful unfolding, and somehow you don't belong, or you're a mistake, or you're not worthy in this perfect fabric of life? So, the practice, the Dharma, the Buddhist teachings are really pointing to us to see that perfection underneath all the stories that we have about who we are. And one of the things that is really so inviting about the Buddhist teachings is this whole notion of underlying perfection that if we can clear ourselves out from the confusion, from what are called the kilesas, the torments of mind or defilements of mind, that underneath it all, we are already beautiful and perfect. This is very different from the notion of original sin, which most of us grew up with in Judeo-Christian culture. Boy, I, it, was, it was such a, I remember the moment that first summer at, at Naropa when I, I got that original sin was so deeply ingrained in me and it was just one perspective that wasn't necessarily true. But if you practice it and you're immersed in a culture throughout your whole life, a culture that has been developed over hundreds of years, it becomes a part of, of who you are. So cellularly, we are already perfect. And it's just our unclarity that keeps us from seeing that. This is the Buddha. Luminous is this mind, brightly shining, but it is colored by the attachments that visit it. This unlearned people do not really understand, and so do not cultivate this pure mind. Luminous is this mind, brightly shining, and it is free of the attachments that visit it. This the noble follower of the way really understands, so for them there is cultivation of this mind. We're already perfect. This is uh, Walt Whitman. No, 
refer from a few things in uh, Sharon's book, this a loving kindness book. Walt Whitman says, I am larger and better than I thought. I did not think I held so much goodness. What a wonderful revelation to see. I'm really better than I thought. All the vast goodness inside of me. There's nothing like connecting with that understanding. But we believe our thoughts from all of this past conditioning, mom and dad and society and the energy that just gets passed on and on and on. And that negative image gets stronger and somehow we think that we're supposed to uphold that negative image sometimes, you know, oh well, you know, I'm really, you know, I'm being modest, I'm being spiritual, I'm not really so good. You know. And you get no points for that stance. <laughs> As uh, Trungpa Rinpoche said, timidity is just another ego trip. It's a stance where you separate yourself out. This is from Sharon. She says, For a true spiritual transformation to flourish, we must see beyond this tendency toward mental self-flagellation. Spirituality based on self-hatred can never sustain itself. Generosity coming from self-hatred becomes martyrdom. Morality born of self-hatred becomes rigid repression. Love for others without the foundation of love for ourselves becomes a loss of boundaries, codependency, and a painful and fruitless search for intimacy. But when we contact through meditation our true nature, we can allow others to also find theirs. What a tremendous gift to enable someone's return to the awareness of their own loveliness. When we see the goodness in others, we are enabling them to flower from within. So learning to love yourself is really, it's not just a gift to yourself, it's a bodhisattva act. You know how it is when you're around somebody who has that sense, who exudes that, that sense of being completely okay within themselves? It gives you permission to be that way. They're much less apt to be judging you, that's for sure, and it also starts to become contagious. Oh, it's really okay. Think of the people, when I think of the people, wise, inspiring beings, say, the Dalai Lama, of course, comes to mind. How do you think he feels about himself? You think he beats himself up? He might have his moments, because he's so honest and human, but probably he feels pretty good about himself. Or the Buddha. Do you think he was busy saying, oh, I'm really terrible? <laughs> Probably not. Or Jesus. There's a certain obviousness where they don't have to go around showing how great they are. It's just that they are part of that perfection and they realize it. And so 
it can inspire us, it becomes contagious being around that kind of energy. I don't know if I read this recently, the Mayor Baba quote on, on love. Have I read that recently? It's one of my favorite quotes of all about the transmission of good energy and love. Mayor Baba says, love has to spring spontaneously from within. It is in no way amenable to any form of inner or outer force. Love and coercion can never go together. But though love cannot be forced on anyone, it can be awakened in them through love itself. Love is essentially self-communicative. Those who do not have it catch it from those who have it. True love is unconquerable and irresistible, and it goes on gathering power and spreading itself until eventually it transforms everyone whom it touches. That's how it works. When we're around somebody who is in love, who is love, something becomes transmitted just being around that vibration. And it reminds us we can feel that way too. It's like you turn into a certain frequency that overrides your own confusion and then you become a beacon for it for however long you're in that space. So it, it, it becomes a contagious effect. As we love ourselves or learn more and more to love ourselves, it's really a gift that we give to everyone around us. Another aspect of or incentive to learn to love ourselves is that when we do, we are coming from a place of abundance rather than scarcity because there's a fullness. Love is the very, it's the near, uh, the near enemy of love, I should say, as, as you've heard me say a number of times, is attachment. It's very different. It looks like, it, it looks like love, but attachment is a kind of contracted space where there's need. Love is very expansive and generative. And it is an abundant, generous energy that comes out of us. When we feel it, it's like completing the circuit with ourselves. All this love that we've been looking for and giving outside of ourselves, we connect with inside. One of my favorite lines, actually, it came to me on the, the Loving Kindness Retreat. And brought tears to my eyes. Um, it's a Moody Blues song. Um, it says, um, all the love you've been giving has all been meant for you. I remember when I heard that, I was thinking of my friend in New York, just this beautiful, beautiful person who I, I love so dearly, who is always giving outside for everyone. And if you just, for a moment, feel all the beauty and the love that he had, his life would be incredibly um, awakened on another level. He's so beautiful. And so I got the sense that it completes the circuit with ourselves. It's like, instead of looking outside, it's boing, and then it just keeps on getting stronger and stronger, and then we can generate out. 
So it sounds all very good if we could only do it. So you might be wondering, okay, well, how do I do it? Nice idea. And I just want to say it is actually possible to change. I know that it's possible to change and to learn to love yourself. And I know from my own experience that this is so. I've shared this from time to time. It's what made me fall in love with the Dharma, the possibility of perhaps not beating myself up so much. Because I was very hard on myself when I was growing up. I thought I was kind of ugly and kind of clumsy and I was very shy and kind of chubby and you know everything that I that every time I look in a mirror actually I didn't even like to look in a mirror until I was about 17 I, I couldn't look in the mirror without wincing just ooh. Uh, and then it was still pretty hard but I kind of got over it and said okay I've got to look and I've got to take care of myself and and when I got first exposed to the practice when I was about 26. If I was told that I would eventually really feel comfortable within myself and enjoy my company, really enjoy my company and love myself, it would have seemed pretty remote even then. And I know that it's possible because I do enjoy my company. Not always and button gets pressed and there I'm back in paranoia and, and self-consciousness and those tapes are very deep but they don't last for very long and I know there's another way they're held in another way it's possible for us to learn I want to share with you a, a beautiful passage about a boy from Cambodia a young man talking about his life as a child in Cambodia. All of the children in his village spent years imprisoned in a barbed wire encampment. Four times a day, people were brought to the outskirts of that encampment to be killed. The children were all lined up and forced to watch. According to the rule, if one of them started to cry, then he or she would also be killed. This boy said that each time people were brought to be killed, he was absolutely terrified that among them would be a friend, neighbor, or relative. He knew that if that happened, he would start to cry, and then he would be killed himself. He lived with this terror for years. He said that in that circumstance, the only way he could survive was to completely cut off all feeling, to dehumanize himself altogether. After many years, the political situation changed in Cambodia, and this boy was adopted by an American family and brought to the United States. At that point in his life, he knew that now he would be able to survive only if he learned how to love again, to break down the walls that he had been forced to create. The young man related that he learned to love again by looking into the eyes of his foster father and seeing there so much love for him. 
in the mirror of his foster father's love, that boy realized that he was indeed lovable and that therefore he was also capable of extending love. imagine the horror to go through and then to see that it's actually possible to open the heart again we can learn it takes a few steps in this process first the wish to be happy is a motivating force. Now, this wish to be happy is something that we all have. No matter how we live our lives, we all want to be happy. Usually, we're going about doing the very things that cause more suffering when we don't see so clearly. But that wish to be happy is actually a very skillful motivating force when we see what will lead to more happiness. Once we see that, a very key step is having the intention to incline the mind towards acceptance and self-love. Now, it might not happen right away. It usually doesn't because old habits are very strong and those killaces get in the way we identify with them and say oh that's who I really am even if we know better on a deep emotional level they're experienced as being the truth but if we incline the mind little by little even if it seems forced it's that's how the loving-kindness practice works at first you do it and it's rote May I be happy, may I be peaceful, yeah, right. You know. may, I, may I be filled with love, fat chance. You know. May I grow in wisdom, may I be happy, may I be peaceful. And all of those thoughts keep on coming up that say, forget it, buddy, who do you think you're fooling? But over and over, as you plant those seeds, they start to take root. What happens often in the meta, in the meta loving-kindness practice is you get to see everything it, that gets in the way of your unconditional love. And that's okay. That's really a very crucial step because until you see everything that gets in the way, it's blinding you and filtering your experience. And as we can see, those are just thoughts more and more. And the Vipassana practice is, is the the powerful tool in this, you see, it's just thoughts, it's just mental creations in the mind. It's just these bubbles that we take to be real that we don't have to identify with. Then there's more and more the possibility of seeing what's underneath there, the beauty that's always been there. And we learn our own beauty. This is from Galway Cannell. The bud stands for all things, even for those things that don't flower. For everything flowers from within of self-blessing. 
Though sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness, to put a hand on the brow of the flower and retell it in words and in touch, it is lovely until it flowers again from within of self-blessing. Of self-blessing. What does that mean, self-blessing? The natural beauty sees itself and blesses itself when we don't get in the way with our own confusion and, and patterns of thought. You know the Buddha, that, that line that, that's been said here many times, the Buddha saying, we can look all over the world and not find anyone more deserving of love than ourselves. It's obvious when you're coming from his vantage point. How can you exclude yourself from that? Another aspect of developing this self-love is being attentive to your wholesome moments so that you don't dismiss them or only key in when you're confirming how rotten you are. Oh yeah, there I am, you know, screwing up again. You know. Sometimes we have our radar out for that. We're so good at seeing all the ways we blow it or all the suffering and that we create for ourselves and others that we forget to pay attention when our natural wisdom or kindness is expressed. And it takes some intention and inclining the mind to pay attention to our own wholesomeness. I've talked before about noticing, nourishing the wholesome seeds in us. You might try that again this week just to see those moments where you're really expressing some wisdom, some kindness. You have to be very watchful because they can slip by unnoticed. Or you just kind of say, oh, that was a fluke. You know, I did something nice that time. You know? No. Just like we have the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows in us. Look for the beauty in you. This is something in the metta meditation that is often, often done to first reflect on some kind acts that you've done so that you feel that you are deserving of this love that you'd want to direct towards yourself. Something that I found helpful, I shared when I came back from my loving kindness, uh, from my metta practice this fall, when I was doing the practice for myself was to just get into somebody else's perspective who I know loves me. Just to, for a moment, I got into this person's reality and just saw me from standing outside of myself, seeing, what do they see in me? And then I was them for a few moments and seeing, oh, yeah, gee. And I felt how they loved me. It's a very good practice. Just for a moment, just try this. Okay, close your eyes. And think of somebody who you know really appreciates you, really loves you if you can 
get in touch on that level, really enjoys and delights in you. It can also be somebody from your past if there's nobody strong that comes to mind now. And now, just slip into their reality for a moment. Become them. And look out through their eyes and through their heart to you, to this being. We won't call it you now. To this other being in front of them. And just feel their delight. See and feel what they see and feel. Okay, you can open your eyes if you'd like. Could you feel it for just a moment? Just for a moment. It's neat. Hey. Kind of take a rest from being yourself for a moment, you know, and get into somebody else's reality. This is from Thoreau, Henry David Thoreau. Could a greater miracle take place than for us to look through each other's eyes for an instant? To see yourself through somebody else's eyes? What a miracle. Just get out of your own contracted story to be somebody else and see your beauty. Something also that I uh, have been playing around with this year, I, I, pro I might have mentioned it before in this, this group. Just imagine meeting somebody who had your tastes and your um, understandings and your uh, pains, similar uh, senses of humor, somebody who really saw the world a lot like you see it. How would you feel meeting somebody who really got it the way you got it, who really got your jokes, who really understood why you get bummed out when you get bummed out? You know, it's so hard to find somebody who gets it. Chances are, if you met somebody who saw the world like you do, I'd be ecstatic myself, <laughs> you know. And I think for most of us, if we came close to finding ourselves, meeting ourselves on the street, we would strike up the most wonderful friendship. We'd love hanging around that person. It's just that when we're inside the body that it somehow doesn't feel as accessible. You are your own best friend. Nobody gets it the way you do. That was a big shift for me when I, I used to really dread being alone in my early 20s. And then I lived, I lived by myself actually for a number of years and it shifted from being scared the first part of that period to just really liking my own company, even though I didn't like myself so much, but it was like, okay, I can, at least I don't have to please anybody else. And it was kind of 
okay, I can enjoy being by myself, being, being with my own company. I don't have to do anything for anyone else, and I can be in my own world. You are your own best friend to meet yourself. Now with this, of course, as you practice this self-love, as I said, you see all the things that get in the way. So a very essential piece in this development is having patience and compassion for all the flaws that you do see because chances are you're not perfect except in your perfection, in your imperfection. So having the intention to see the good and when you see all the disgusting stuff around bringing a a heart of kindness and patience with that because in that moment you are bigger than that small story and you're bringing love once more. There's a part of you that is a wise Buddha or Kuan Yin that can say it's okay. You know the instructions that um, Maharaji Neem Karoli Baba gave. I, I read a little from, uh, from Be Here Now last week and as I said that was a turning point book for me and Maharaji the Indian on the blanket uh, was my first great Dharma inspiration. Very simple practice. He said keep on tuning into the good in people. Even when you know all the garbage around, when you see all the ways they, they blow it and you can get angry and frustrated, keep looking for the good because that's what you'll draw out. And it's the same way with ourselves. You'll see all the garbage all too clearly. Keep tuning into the good because that's who you really are. A since the sincere person that would bring you to a, a Thursday group like this or really want to wake up that is already the Buddha. More and more as we incline the mind towards looking for that, we find it. So, we can take some time for discussion. Any questions that might come up or comments? You can do it. Watch the timidity. Oh no, not me. Now I gotta be on. Yeah, I think so. You gotta have to speak right into the microphone. Okay, like put it close to your lips. That's that optical delusion of consciousness. Okay. 
Hi. And say your name. And that was Susan before? Yes. And your June. A little louder. And, um, the question that he asked was the audience, if you only had one year with, how would you live it differently? What would you do? And I thought about it that evening and I thought about something the next day and I realized that um, it, it wasn't for me about traveling around the world or putting my job or if I had just a year to live, I would want to live loving myself the way I would love someone else if I knew that I only had a year with them. And I would treasure every single moment. And it really, even now, it brings tears to my eyes to think about how hard it is to treasure every single moment of my precious life. So, um, that was my experience. Beautiful. And it's really hard to make it every single moment. You just do the best you can. And even having that intention, without the report card, you know, but just having that intention as best you can to remember to appreciate these moments, that's, that's the start. And it's beautiful. Well, I think for me, just having um, the intention and remembering that I Mm-hmm. Has really changed things in the last mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I uh, read that book um, last month, and it was, it does bring a, a kind of immediacy to one's life. It's very short. Why not, why not make the most of it? It's too short to spend our time beating ourselves up. It's a great practice. Uh, a Year to Live, Stephen Levine. Else, anybody else on this topic? Real loud, okay. Uh-huh. How would you define how do just uh, say a word about narcissism as you as you relate to it <laughs> this does sound a little California. Uh, you know, speak into the microphone because yeah. it's real hard to hear.
Is what? You're right. It is a, it, it's a fine line for us all to look at. I'm not talking about self being self-absorbed or um, indulgent and putting yourself before anybody else in the sense that you just care about satisfying your own needs. Because Ultimately, if that's what you do, that won't be very satisfying either. So it's, it's a lot more dynamic than that. It takes a real investigation to see what genuinely makes us happy. And usually what makes us happy besides having our own wants and desires satisfied, that's very limited kind of happiness, is connecting with others and expressing our caring and serving others and feeling a sense of, of connection. So, not to stop at any particular level and say, oh well, it's about just taking care of myself and, you know, then I'll check out everybody else. It's seeing what really brings happiness to ourselves. And when I, the reason why I would give a talk on this is that it's in a way compensating for that very deeply ingrained tendency that we have to either um, not get in touch with our needs or our wants or somehow uh, to beat ourselves up. So I, I tried to make that point at the beginning that it's very different from conceit or self-absorption that there is a sense of including ourself in the love that we'd have for everyone else. And I think it's, it's true. It takes a real attentive heart to see when it gets into self-indulgence and self-absorption. I agree. This talk was given by James Barris at Berkeley Sitting Group in 2001. It is an offering of the Dharma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.